You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning. I want to welcome you as you join us online. I can almost picture you there at your home, on your couch, uh, with your Bible in your hand and your notebook, eager to take notes as we look at the Word of God, or maybe with your children and your spouse, and when they get restless, you would use the Word of God to uh, hit them over the head and uh, help them to get back into focus. But in all seriousness, I'm so proud to be the pastor of your church. I'm so eager to share God's word with you. And I'm so happy that our church is eager to understand and apply God's word. I'm so thankful for the robust and healthy and hearty nature of what we do as we learn God's word on a regular basis. I'm so thankful that we pay special attention to biblical theology, God's great story as we look at each passage um, and we see how it fits into God's great story. And I'm so thankful for the committed disciples that are being produced in our church that I'm watching who are understanding God's word, meditating upon God's word and exalting in God's word on a regular basis. Well, now for the most important piece of what we do. If you have your Bible, would you open it, please, to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Once again, Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. So if you remember this cohesive theme that's taking place in chapter 8, we start start in verse 22, and there's going to be four miracles. We've already seen two of them, and today we start the third. And in these verses, we see really a simple pattern. As verse 22 starts with the words one day, we see this new theme beginning on into the end of the chapter. So verse 22 in chapter 8 starts this new theme, this this turn of the page in a sense. Uh, Verses 22 on to the end of of chapter 8 starts us in this new theme. It starts with one day signifying this new theme. And then we see the first miracle, Jesus calming the storm. Uh, What we see is Jesus's power over nature, over the earth, which is also over the curse that started in Genesis chapter three. And the pattern is after we see his power over the curse and after we see him uh, command the winds and the waves to stop, we then see a reaction by the people and the people who are with him uh, exemplify one particular quality, which is fear. They show us fear because this is meant to show us that Jesus has power over the curse. And yet this is also sinful man realizing now they are in the presence of holy God. The power showed us that he is God. 
And so we see the second miracle then of Jesus casting out the demons. Not only over the curse does he have power, but over demons and Satan and the spiritual forces. Jesus shows us his power over these forces by, um, by uh, casting out the demons. Now this demonic work, this uh, spiritual work of evil started with the fall of Lucifer. And then the pattern after we see Jesus cast out these demons is that man sees this and is again afraid because this is meant to show us his power over evil, but also sinful man realizing because of his power that they are in the presence of holy God. And so again, this power over evil is demonstrating Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And so what we're going to see today is this third miracle where Jesus is going to begin eliminating sickness and death. And what we're going to see in this passage is Jesus is going to have power over the effects of sin, disease, um, and then even again, death that started also in Genesis chapter three. And the pattern once again is after Jesus shows his power over death, over disease, just like over the curse, just like over the demons and spiritual forces, we're going to see this pattern of man then because of the display of his power, realizing that they are in the presence of holy God. This is the Messiah, the son of God displayed through his power over evil. And then next week or the week following, as we finish this chapter, we'll see then his now specific power over death as Jesus raises someone from the dead, his conquering of death. Once again, this is the ultimate enemy, the punishment of sin. And Jesus has power over this specific evil. And so once again, we see the pattern as Jesus has power over evil, man responds by being afraid because because the display of this power shows they are in the presence of holy God. And so Jesus' power over all evil, today specifically over disease and over death, we are going to start this testimony that Jesus has power over disease and over death. And as we look at this passage now, as we make our way, starting in verse 40, before we read through the end of this chapter, covering the third and the fourth miracle of disease and death, I can't help but see this sovereignty of God. We are watching right now the demonstration that will testify to Jesus, Jesus' power, his messiahship, his, his deity, because we're watching his power over sickness and disease and over his power over death. And so these last two miracles, sickness, disease, death, at a time in which we are seeing this become very true and very relevant in our lives. Now, as we look at this, these two miracles are going to overlap. They're in the same passage. And so we're going to cover verses 40 through 56 in the next few weeks. And after reading the story today, we're only going to cover verses 40 through 43. And so as we watch this, once again, we are seeing Jesus's power over disease and death. And before we read, let me tell you, the specifics of what we'll cover today in that story over disease and death, about disease and death, is going to show us the desperation that comes along with disease and death. And so we're going to cover all of these verses in the next few weeks. And today we start this third and fourth miracle over disease and Jesus' power over disease and death. But today we're going to only see a, a particular portion of this, which is the desperation that arises from the reality of disease and from the reality of death. 
Let me tell you, we're going to cover this desperation. And desperation does come from the reality of disease and death. And next week, we'll see Jesus' display of his power over disease and death. But again, today's going to be a little bit of a cliffhanger because we're going to just cover the desperation that comes with the reality of disease and death. And I can't help but acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty in us covering this passage. Over us covering the third and the fourth miracle, disease and death during a time like this. And then particularly today, covering the desperation that comes along with the reality of disease and death, even before we see Jesus's power displayed. This is God's sovereignty that we would come to this passage at a time like this. How good he is that he oversees our church, that his hand is upon us and his word as we look at this. And as we come to this passage during a time like this, he's caring for us. He's with us. He sees us. He's guiding us into truth during this time. And we are covering this idea of of disease and death and desperation and Jesus's power over it. But as we're watching this and we're lingering over the desperation caused by disease and death, and we next week linger over the display of Jesus's power, we understand that this sickness that we are going through, uh, that we are seeing spread across the globe right now is widespread. And not only to the United States, but across the earth. I mean, if we really think about this in biblical terms, the coronavirus is a natural evil. We make no mistake about that, right? It's the natural result of the fall. And the virus, it still resides under the sovereign care and control of God. But the existence of this virus is a natural result of evil coming from Genesis chapter three. It's the fact that all disease and all death is a result, a natural result of the natural evil that comes from Genesis chapter three. And so as this reality is true for us, it causes great desperation as we see the reality of disease and see the reality of death and long for the reality of healing and long for the reality of salvation. And we come across this passage at the right time because listen, all men, all women, all children across the entire earth are affected by this sickness. When all of God's present living creation is impacted by this disease. Children, Muslims, Buddhists, Jews, all affected by this virus, rich, poor, American, Asian, African, Italian, somehow impacted and affected. We can't help but meditate upon the desperation that all of creation has upon God and his sovereignty. And if this pandemic has occurred, listen, due to the, our knowledge about God's sovereignty, if this pandemic has indeed occurred, which it has, then God has allowed it. And if God has allowed this pandemic to occur, then he has purposes for it. Now, his purposes are numerous. Remember, God is doing 10,000 things in our lives, and we may be aware of just a few, but I can't help but observe in light of this passage here in front of us today that some of his main intentions line up with what we learn in this passage we're going to learn, which is to make evident that disease and death are a reality for all human beings. No matter their age, no matter their occupation, no matter their their race, no matter where they're from, it is a result of sin, disease, and death are a reality for all. And we are subject 
to the consequences, the natural evils of sin. We need to embrace this reality. We don't need to run away from it or shy away from it or pretend that it's not real. We need to all the more during this time embrace it because what this will do is catapult us into a true desperation. And that's not a bad thing. The results of the reality of disease and death catapult us into a place of reality of desperation. And yet, when we are desperate, we see that God maintains his power. His power over disease, over sickness, and over the effects of sin help us to understand something very important. That God is different than us. He is not desperate. He is not subject to this disease. His portion of his power or his holiness is not diminished by this virus or by sickness or by disease or by death. And therefore, because of his power, just like this passage is showing us, we understand that he is God and we are not. He is outside of disease. He is outside of death and we are not. He is untouched, and yet we are victims. Jesus maintains power over evil. And we're going to learn this in this chapter. Over the nature, over the curse, over the demons, over the spiritual forces, over disease, over the effects of sin, over death. And that is why Jesus can offer us salvation out of these things for all of eternity. Because he is not under that power. One day, the scriptures promise us that when his kingdom comes in all of its fullness, Christ will heal every disease. He will keep us from the sting of death permanently. He will save us from every evil. And therefore, in light of this, we must determine he is God, the anointed one. He will save us from the curse, from the evil that we are bound to. And yet, we church, right now, as we look at this passage, we embrace our desperation and we beg for deliverance from this evil, from healing from disease and deliverance from ultimate death because we realize the immense gap between us and him and death and disease and desperation bring us to this point. So let's pray and let's look to the scriptures. And as we do, let's look for our desperation as we see the reality of disease and death. And in our desperation, let us cry out to the one who can display power over disease and death. The only one, the one who is not like us, the Messiah, Jesus, the son of God. And in him, as we believe and we cry out, we'll find eternal life. And so let's pray and ask God to show us as we look at just four verses of this passage today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And God, you show us in your word that the main point of all of scripture and in Luke is showing us that you're the Messiah, the son of God. And as we look across all of scripture and see this, one of the ways you show us is through your power. And God, your divine power over evil convinces us that we are not like you, you are set apart. You are the Messiah and we are not. And you are exactly who you need to be to provide for us salvation. You have the power over the curse, power over spiritual forces, power over the effects of sin, power over death. God, I pray that even during this time now, as we simply look at the desperation that the reality of disease and death will cause, that we wouldn't uh, move into a despair that would leave us um, in that place forever. 
yet we would embrace desperation as a real thing so that we can, we can look to you and cry out to you and plead with you and, and draw near to you because you are the only one who displays true power over every evil. So as we embrace desperation along with these two characters today, help us to be people who see the reality of our desperate state because we see the reality of our powerlessness over evil. And yet you are very different. You are the son of God, the Messiah. Help us to believe in you that we would be delivered from every disease and delivered from death through salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read Luke chapter eight, verses 40 through 56. We're gonna read all of the passage together and then we're gonna be covering today walking through verses 40 through 43. But let's read all of the passage and then we'll come back to verses 40 through 43 for our portion today. Luke chapter eight, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus, hearing these things, answered him, said, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that the child was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. What an incredible passage as we look at Jesus's power over disease and death. Now, as we walk through this, remember the structure of everything we do is always the structure of the text. So there's no outline necessarily. It's a narrative. So we're just walking through this narrative, seeing the truth of it. And remember, as we walk through this text, the best thing that we can do is meditate upon this truth, simmer in it, sit in it. Let's understand it, but not only for understanding's sake, but so 
that we can apply it as situations arise in our lives and as we apply this truth to the present situation that we all find ourselves in. So Jesus's power over disease and death made clear. And we're going to see only one point today, the first point of this passage, and then we'll continue starting next week. The only thing, the first thing that we see this week is the desperation that is caused by the disease and by death. The desperation caused by disease and death found in verses 40 through 43. So now in all three of the synoptic gospels, we have the healing of this woman directly in the middle of Jairus' story, displaying Jesus's power over disease and death. And so we watch this unfold. Let's start in verse 40 and we'll walk through it. As we see this, it says in verse 40, now when Jesus returned, so if you see that, as you see that, now when Jesus returned, remember, and as my son Preston would say, buimembo, and uh, that ends with an O, buimembo. And Jesus, as we remember, Jesus was sitting with and visiting the garrison people. He had left Capernaum to go to the garrison people. Remember this? And this Capernaum was a, a home base for Jesus' ministry. And what he did was he sailed across uh, the Sea of Galilee about six miles from point to point on where his orig uh, origin was until where he was going, his destination. And he went to the garrison people to visit them. And he did so for a number of reasons. He left Capernaum to go to, to the garrison people for a number of reasons. Remember, um, he was tired. Um, he was going to rest on the boat, right? Um, he desired some relief from the crowds. There were tens of thousands of people uh, surrounding him at all time. Um, and so then he also wanted to increase the faith of the disciples. And so he was going to utilize this time on the boat to deepen their faith as the storm would come. He also was going to show his power over nature, the curse, right? By calming the storm. He had a divine appointment with the demon. He was going to uh, meet this demon. The demon would be waiting for him. And he also began a Gentile missionary work in this region of the Gerasenes. And so Jesus was never alone, by the way, when he left Capernaum to go, even as he sailed, he had disciples, he had learners with him and those who he would explain things to in more depth. But remember, after he redeemed the demon-possessed man, the redeemed man wished to be with Jesus, to stay with Jesus. And yet Jesus says, I know you desire to be with me, to stay with me, right? Because your heart has been changed. But I want to send you. I want to send you to your people. And Jesus sent him to evangelize. Now, those other people of the region, intimidated by the presence of God from what they just saw, they are in the presence of holy God who just cast out demons and cast out evil. They didn't wish to be with Jesus. In fact, they begged Jesus to leave. And so this, as they begged Jesus, um, shows their hearts that were unchanged by the presence of holy God. And instead of Jesus staying with them, Jesus does what, he, what they ask him to do, and he leaves. This is a form of judgment. Jesus gives them exactly what they want, which is separation from God. 
This is exactly what they want. They want separation from God. And so Jesus gives them exactly what they want. And this is a form of judgment. So Jesus leaves. And now verse 40, as we read this, when Jesus returned, this is him returning to Capernaum after he's left the garrisoned people to exactly where he started in Capernaum. And as he does, there's a crowd waiting for him. I mean, think about this. This crowd that's waiting for him in Capernaum never left. They were there the whole time. So they welcomed him. It says in verse 40, when, the, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For, it says for, there's a reason. They were there, all there, waiting for him. So they welcomed him because they were all waiting for him. They never left. Picture this. They had been standing on the shore since Jesus had left to go to uh, meet the winds and the waves and to meet the garrison people and to uh, cast out the demon, to change this man and to come back. They were still waiting for him on the shore. Now, this was a, a people on the shore full of true disciples, some false disciples, some observers, some just there for the benefits that Jesus would provide. But Mark, in this same passage, tells us that they weren't waiting in their homes. Like, they didn't go sit back and relax and wait till Jesus came back and then meet him, um, uh, you know, when they heard he was coming. They were there. They met him. They surrounded him on the lake. Look at this in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. They smothered him right when he comes back. Now, side note here, in our American Christian culture, I think we would determine all of these people to be true disciples. Man, like if they're waiting for Jesus, you know, that, that long for him to come back after he's done this great mighty work, uh, you know, they must all be Christians because don't you see how long they've been waiting for him? But we know that they all weren't Christians. They're not all believers. And so maybe we're too quick to assure people or, or to see evidences because one of the marks of a true disciple is that they persevere, they last, they make it to the end still following Jesus. And many of these people weren't going to follow Jesus to the end. So whether or not they're true disciples, many of these people came to the lakeshore as Jesus returns, we find in verse 40, and they welcomed him because they were all waiting on him. Now, these people were full of a lot of different characteristics, but one of the main characteristics was a lot of them were sick. A lot of them were diseased. A lot of them wanted healing. They were lame, sick, oppressed, dying, whether um, it was them particularly or their family. And these people were pretty desperate. Those waiting for Jesus on the shore, welcoming him back, those who have waited this whole time, many of them were desperate. Why? Because as they were waiting, uh, they were wanting Jesus to heal them or the people in their family. Thousands of people at the shore waiting for Jesus to heal them or their family, desperate for Jesus to do the things that they've seen and some of them have just heard about. They're anxious, they're pressing in, they're hoping Jesus, is no Jesus notices them and grants them their request. And yet, by the way, this also shows Jesus' great compassion because, listen, Jesus comes back to the shore, these people are pressing in, they want healing for their diseases and their sicknesses, they want to hear from Jesus, while at the same time, 
Jesus is coming back to them. And so Jesus is here showing also a great compassion that we see. He's available to them. He's reachable. He has a desire to heal them. He wants to care for the ill. He is among them on purpose, even in times of their infirmities. And so it's not only that they're pressing in and an inconvenience to Jesus and they want something from him, but it's Jesus coming back to them and caring for them and seeing their sicknesses. And, and we want to see this because Jesus wants them to believe more than to be just healed of their sicknesses. He wants them to believe in him as the Christ, as is the main point of this, like we mentioned. So in Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 17, we see a picture of this. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, of course, this speaking of salvation. But Jesus has come to call those who are sick in sin and desperate, even with no hope in their lives here on earth. So remember, after this, in the beginning of chapter 8, when um, Jesus was kicked out of the synagogues and he was no longer teaching in the synagogues, he was in the streets with the lowly people. Remember, he was among them. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Think about this. Soon afterward, he went through the city, the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. So once again, this is not just Jesus coming back and being inconvenienced by people on the shore. Jesus is coming back because this is his meeting place. This is his uh, main spot. This is his home base of ministry. But also Jesus desires to heal these people. He wants to be among them. He wants to heal them. He has compassion on them because he loves them and he wants them to believe in him. So although what we see here in Jesus' true hum humanity is that he desires to retreat sometimes from the crowds, to rest at times because ministry and evangelism and discipleship and intentional living in his humanity is tiresome, Jesus embraced his main purpose and ministry to reach and to die for people he loved. And so he was among them. Listen, he was spending time with them in their sicknesses. He was among them during the time of their sickness. He was caring for their needs. He was sharing the good news with them. He was loving them, even in the face of hurtful rejection of some towards him. And listen, church, this is a good time for us to notice that although we as Christians need respite from the ministry, from caring for people, from evangelism, from discipleship, from intentional living, let's not think that our ultimate aim is rest, right? The true purpose is the same as Jesus's purpose, to spend time ministering and showing compassion to people. So Jesus was tired, but he embraced coming back to the sick people because he loved them. And let us embrace it too. Although draining at times, the real purpose of us as Christians that's, uh, uh, is, is that we would love people. Our rest should be fueling our ministry as we share the gospel and care for people. He loved them. He looked upon them with compassion. Remember in Matthew chapter 9, he says this, And Jesus went all throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, look at this, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so even in this, as he comes back from this trip 
to the garrison people. These people are waiting. They're desperate. They have mixed motives. Some of them desire to learn and follow Jesus, uh, learn from and follow Jesus. Some desire just to be healed. And yet Jesus intentionally comes back to these people because he has compassion on them and he cares for them. And he does want to provide healing for them, even in the midst of their sicknesses, so that they would believe in him as the Messiah. And so Jesus' main role here is to care for them, but ultimately to die and deliver them from ultimate evil, which is sin. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus coming back to demonstrate his power over sickness and yet for the purpose of them believing in him. And so as we see this, we move on to verse 41. And in light of all of these desperate people, because of the looming disease and sickness and death, were introduced to a man who displayed this desperation intensely, and his name is Jairus. And we see in verse 41, it says this, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. And so, verse 41, among all of these desperate people, as Jesus comes back across the sea, there's this man named Jairus who comes to the forefront who is extremely desperate. And Jesus is showing compassion. He comes back to them and they desire to be healed because they're full of disease and some at the point of death. And Jairus, he comes and we know that Jairus is a, a, a few things. First of all, we know that he's a Jewish man because his name, the origin of of his name, we see the equivalent in the book of Numbers. And so we know that he is a Jewish man there on the shore of Capernaum. We also know that he's the ruler of the synagogue. It says this in verse 41, there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue, which means, for example, that this man Jairus was the one responsible for the preparations of the synagogue services. He assigned those to lead prayer, to read scripture, to teach the scripture. And so in this culture, Jairus was a man of great distinction. He was a man of great renown. Now, this is really important that you notice this. He was a man of great renown, of great distinction. He was a man that had prominence in the community. And it's important because in just a little bit, we're going to see that he fell at Jesus's feet. This prominent man was among these desperate people who had diseases and faced death, and they desired to be with Jesus. And Jesus had compassion on them and wanted to heal their diseases and show his power over them so that they would believe and that they would be saved. And this Jairus, this prominent man, it doesn't matter that he's prominent or that he's someone who teaches in the synagogues. He still falls at Jesus' feet. Now listen, this again is a man of prominence, of great respect. He would be the equivalent of like a spiritual, great spiritual leader in a town. He was full of wisdom. He loved God. He was knowledgeable about the scriptures. He cared for people. This would be almost the equivalent of a New Testament church elder. And in a town like this, there was about three of them. And so we all know that this man was revered and he shows a desperation for Jesus. 
to come to his house. And this uh, reverence that he held among the people displays here how desperate indeed he was that he would fall down before Jesus. And so listen, at this time, you see the system worked in a specific way. This gives us more information about Jairus as we're introduced to him when he comes, this ruler of the synagogue in verse 41. Listen, the way that this institution worked at this time is that we saw the synagogue uh, be ran uh, by the religious uh, people. And so what we see during this time is, listen, the synagogue and the religious institution of Judaism were very uh, connected uh, with the, uh, the politicians and the government and the institutions. They were extricably connected with the social government and the economic situation that the Jewish people faced. So the synagogue and the government kind of uh, coincided here. The Sadducees would be the people over the political aspect of the Jewish people's uh, cares and affairs. And the Pharisees and the scribes would oversee the religious or the theological aspect. So you got politicians um, over uh, the Jewish people that was inextricably tied to the synagogues and the Pharisees and the scribes oversaw that. The Sadducees oversaw the political situation. So the, the Pharisees and the scribes overseeing the religious theological institution for the Jews. Therefore, what we understand about Jairus is that he would have been significantly connected to the Pharisees and the scribes. Jairus, this man who is now coming forth among these desperate people falling at the feet of Jesus is tied to the Pharisees and the scribes. Now with the Pharisees and the scribes, they're often not um, humble to say the least, right? They're concerned about theology, but they're blind in their hearts. They don't apply this theology to their own lives. The Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus. They were full of pride. And then therefore this man Jairus who comes among these desperate people and the reality of death and disease facing his family and lays prostrate before Jesus on the ground, broken for his only daughter, begging, imploring, beseeching Jesus to come to his house. And this displays a belief, a humility, a desperation that comes from the reality of disease and of death. This man doesn't care about his prominent position. Disease and death has caused him to see things differently. And he cares about now his daughter whom he loves. And so he comes begging for a great reason because there is a great need. And he sees Jesus. And this place, Jesus has done a few miracles. He healed Peter's mother-in-law for an example. So Jairus knows of Jesus' healing power and he shows humility by coming and laying prostrate before Jesus. It says at the end, he fell of verse 41, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him to come to his house. So there's this crowd. Jesus returns. They're desperate. They're sick. Jesus aims to display his power over sickness and over disease and over death to show he's the son of God. And he has compassion on these people. He's going to show them. And this reality of disease and death is calling, causing these people to be desperate. The same is true for Jairus, this prominent man who is desperate because his daughter is about to die. And he lays himself before Jesus in submission because again, the reality of death and disease have caused him to be desperate and he can only go to Jesus who's the only one with power over this disease and death and the only one who's able to save. And so verse 42, what we see is the reason why he came to Jesus. 
In verse 42, it says for, or the reason why, the grounds on which he came to Jesus is that he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. And so this is a real life story. Imagine this man who's desperate because his daughter, his only daughter, who is about 12 years of age, is dying. She's going to die. And he comes to Jesus. And Luke is the only writer who tells us that she's his only daughter. But what the Greek text implies is that this is his only child. This is his heir. It's not only his only daughter. It's his only child. And while Luke doesn't give us the further details about Jairus' request, Mark does. Here's what he says that Jairus says. Mark 5, 23. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. And then he went with him. And so these are the actual words. And Matthew gives us a simple abbreviated version of the story. What he says is he combines Jairus' words with the messenger later on. And what he says is, my daughter has died. But this isn't what's happened so far. She's in the process of dying. And Mark shows us his request. This man is desperate. Later on, he's going to get news that she had died. But this man exhibits rare faith, but also great desperation during a time of devastation and despair. He is desperate because his daughter, his only child, she is at the age where she should be getting married and and childbearing during this uh, time in society. This should be a jubilant time for this family. She's 12 years old. And instead of it being a jubilant time, it's a desperate time. Why is this desperation coming to pass in their lives? It's because of the reality of disease and the reality of death that has taken place. This is devastation. This is horrible news. And in the midst of this sickness, in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of the turmoil, the man doesn't rely on his prominent position. The man doesn't rely on his wealth. The man doesn't puff out his chest like the Pharisees and the scribes. The man joins the crowd in desperate humility for Jesus, the only one who has power over evil, over disease, and over death. The desperation has caused him to go to Jesus. And Jesus, once again, aims to display his power so that those who would believe in him um, would be saved because they would see he is different. He's the only one. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. So he doesn't rely on his pride, but he also doesn't sit idle. Now, this is important because, listen, this desperation causes him to cry out. It doesn't just make him careless and, and, and sit idle like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. This causes him to be desperate on purpose to cry out to Jesus. And we should be doing this during this unstable time that we find ourselves in. Don't make this time uh, a, a time of, of sitting idle. Don't just think, oh, nothing's going to happen to me, so, so we'll just uh, chill out, right? Um, uh, God has got it all under control. That is true. God has it all under control. But let this time be a, a, a season where it drives you to desperation. Embrace desperation and the reality of death and in light of the, de- the reality of disease so that you can draw near to the one who has the power over those things and believe in Jesus as as the Messiah. And so in verse 42, what we see is this, um, we, we see th- this Jairus come um, to Jesus because he has an only daughter who's 12 years of age and he is desperate for Jesus to come. And this, listen, this 
uh, this desperation as he comes to Jesus is not without cause. His daughter is truly dying. And so what happens at this point is Jesus goes with this man. It says Jesus went. And what we learn about Jesus in this moment is extremely important. Jesus was present. He had a lot of needs, but he also made himself available to care for individuals and families who were in need in light of disease and death. He, this is the very essence of the gospel. Jesus, he had a great task ahead of him. He was going to go to the cross. Think about this. He had crowds all around him all the time. He had just gotten back from, uh, from casting out a demon. There were desperate people with diseases. And yet, Yet Jesus makes this time to heal this uh, man's daughter. He's going to go with this man. So he went. He makes himself available. And listen, in our brokenness and in our despair, Jesus didn't have to come and save us. He, on his own initiative and his love, left heaven to come and be with us in our home to die for our sins and cause us to have new life. And so Jesus is not too busy here. Jesus knows what must be done and he goes, he's available, he's compassionate. He goes with Jairus to save his daughter, the son of God displaying divine power while at the same time, divine mercy and divine compassion. And what we're seeing here then is he goes with him. And he's fulfilling this idea that we see in Isaiah, which is Jesus being the one who brings about healing. He's the Messiah. He has come to bring healing power, to have compassion, to heal the sick, to make the blind see, to open the ears of the deaf. And he's convincing these people that he's not only able to show this power over evil, but that proves that he's the Messiah. Matthew eleven twenty eight. it tells us to come to him because he's gentle and lowly in heart. Hebrews in chapter 4 tells tells us that Jesus, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. In Psalm 1, we see he's our great shepherd. And so this is Jesus showing himself to be that Messiah. In verse 42, then as we continue, as Jesus went, what we see is these people, they pressed around Jesus. Now what's happening here is that in these streets, in this time, there are narrow streets of an ancient city that they're living in. And a crowd especially the size of this crowd, is pressing. Inevitably, what we're seeing here is that this crowd is crushing. This is meaning that this crowd is crushing. And Luke says that these people were pressed, which is the same verb we see described when the thorns are crushing the wheat in the parable of the soil. This is interesting. Think about this. The thorns, equivalent to the crowd, and the wheat, equivalent, equivalent to Jesus, as the thorns are crushing and trying to choke out this, these, this wheat, so too the crowd is pressing and trying to choke out the work of Jesus. They are in great need, but they are pressing in upon him. And yet Jesus is not crushed by this. Now picture this. Jesus is trying to get to Jairus' daughter. He cares for him deeply. He cares for Jairus. He cares for the daughter. He's going to meet her at his house. But Jesus, unlike Jairus, is not frantic. Jairus must be frantic. He's anxious. He's desperate. His daughter's dying. This is the reality of disease and death that brings about desperation. And the crowds are pressing in and they're crushing on all sides. And those who are pressing in are filled with a lot of other people who are sick, blind, 
lame, oppressed, in need of healing. And then in verse 43, our last verse, we see at this point that there's a woman. And this woman comes on the scene. And it says this, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. This was the desperation that we see now from this woman. At this point, Jesus is with Jairus, going to his house. He's desperate. He's anxious. He's anxious. The crowd is anxious. They need healing. Jairus' daughter is dying. Jesus is coming in compassion. The, the reality of death and disease is calling, causing this desperation and causing these people to go to the one who they believe has the power to overcome this disease and this death. And now this woman is introduced and she's desperate at this as well. Well, there comes an interruption. Now, this must have been very frustrating for Jairus. Can you even imagine? Though we don't see any records of complaint by Jairus, so this maybe even shows us, again, his great humility and character. And what we understand is that Jesus is constantly interrupted, and yet he himself is not agitated by this. Jairus might have been. But what we learn from this is even though this pandemic even for us is interrupting our lives and we seem to be hurried or bothered because we need to get back to doing what we need to be doing. Jesus is fully present here, trusting in his father, loving Jairus, knowing that this woman is coming around the crowds on his way to heal uh, Jairus's daughter. He's fully present in light of disease and death. He's fully trusting. He's fully capable. He's not afraid. Although the people are desperate. This is, the, this is the difference between Jesus himself and us as people. They're desperate because of the reality of disease and death. He is not, right? And so what we see is among these people, we find a woman. Now it tells us that she had a discharge of blood or a flow of blood for 12 years. So listen, when Jesus was in his 20s or when Jairus' daughter was born, this woman was bleeding and she had been bleeding for the duration of Jairus's daughter's life. The, the last 12 years for Jairus were probably pretty jubilant and enjoyable. He got to spend it with his daughter who is now at the age of being married. And yet the last 12 years for this woman would were tragic. They're coming from very different backgrounds, jobs, past financial situations. And yet now in the reality of death and disease, they're both at the exact same place, desperate for Jesus because of the reality of disease and death in desperation because of this disease and because of this this death. Now, the further details of her hemorrhaging and her discharge and flow are unknown, but here's what we can know about the death, depth of trauma this has caused upon her life. First of all, this woman would be in great pain. She would be in great pain. Uh, this was a real disease, right? We see Jairus's desperation, the crowd's desperation, the reality of disease and death. This woman was desperate as well because she was in great pain. She was bleeding for 12 years. She's malnourished. She's tired. She's in great pain. Second of all, she would be extremely weak. Even though the crowds, let alone um, Jairus, but also the crowds are pressing in on Jesus, this woman had to be a different kind of pressing in because she was probably weak. 
It would have been almost near impossible for her to get to Jesus through all of these people. And yet somehow she gets to Jesus. She was weak. In addition to being in pain, in addition to being weak, this woman would also be an outcast. She was an outcast. No one hangs out with the bloody lady, right? Like who hangs out with her? She's an outcast of society, but perhaps most damaging is that she would be a woman who is religiously and ceremoniously unclean by the Jews, right? She's unallowed to even touch her husband or her children. She can't even touch them. She can't go into the synagogue. She can't worship. She can't learn from her religious leaders, the word of God. How do we know this? Well, because Leviticus 15, 25 through 31 tells us this exactly. It says this, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has discharged beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of discharge, she shall, be, she shall continue in uncleanness. And in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And if she is cleansed of her discharge and she, count, um, she can count, uh, for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take of two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one of, uh, for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So according to the law, listen, this sufferer is not permitted to partake in any of the temple worship whatsoever. Her uncleanness was readily communicable to other people. Um, she had to be in isolation. Um, how similar to our situation, she had to be in isolation because... She could communicate this disease, even though this uh, sickness was even temporary for her, maybe. And although temporary for us, maybe it would cease at some point. At this point, there was no cure for her. And so she had to avoid people at all costs because she didn't know. But this uncleanness by the law restricted her from seeing anybody due to her uncleanness before God. It was troublesome. Life was difficult. And because of her hiddenness, listen, she makes this hidden approach to Jesus. If she came openly, people might notice her, not allow her to get close to Jesus. Or she would have to tell of her sickness before these people in public. She was embarrassed. She prefers a secret touch with Jesus. And Luke doesn't tell us, but Mark does. Here's what it says in Mark 5, 26. It says she had suffered much under many physicians. So not only was she unclean, not only was she weak, not only was she an outcast, not only was she in pain, but she had suffered at the hands of physicians. She had spent all that she had and instead of getting better, her disease grew worse. 
So this is her. There's no cure. And this is coming from Luke, the physician. And at this time, there are like legitimate and illegitimate attempts to heal someone. At this time, there's like something even, and this is all in, in seriousness, of a person who would find an ear of corn wrapped in donkey dung and tie it around your neck. And that was maybe a form of healing for a situation like this. Seriously, she probably tried everything, right? And this illegitimate way or legitimate remedies um, had taken all of her money and what we see in this verse is uh, Luke o- omits uh, the, the idea that even the physicians, um, they caused more damage to her than even helping her. But what he does show us is that after this 12 years, this woman is now poor. Her disease and her sickness has made, made her poor. She's facing death. Now really the equivalent of Jairus' daughter right? Jairus' daughter is now facing death. He's desperate and she's desperate because she is sick. She's diseased. She's facing death and she spends all of her money on physicians. No one could heal this lady. She was isolated. She was unsure of her future and the length of her isolation. She never knew if she would be made well ever again. So here we are. Listen, church, two desperate people, at the threat of disease and death. They are made desperate. And this is where we sit up to this point in verse 43. The woman, listen, she's making her way through the crowd, not allowed to touch, and she's so desperate, she doesn't care anymore. She aims to do whatever she can to touch Jesus. And the man is so desperate that although he's in a high position associated with prideful Pharisees, he's going to cut those ties and prostrate himself right before Jesus upon the ground. He's desperate for Jesus's power over disease and death as a son of God because he's heard of it and he needs his daughter healed. She's desperate for Jesus's power over disease and death because he's the son of God. She's heard of it and she needs it for herself. And we see evidence of them both abandoning any law or tradition or position or restraint or restraints to hold on to. And they are in pure desperation for the Savior. Why? Because he's the only one who possesses power over this great evil. You see, disease and death have a certain way of causing us to see reality. That we are desperate. That he is God. That we are not. And yet when Jesus displays his great power over all of evil, including the curse, including demons, including disease and including death, it shows us that he's different than us. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. And we need him. And when we believe we're saved, you see, when we see the disease and the death that is approaching We abandon lesser things just like these people did. We plead and we seek the one who has true power over evil and true compassion for people. This woman was an outcast, right? This passage shows us two very different people. She was an outcast and yet he was from a high social and religious status. But this shows us it doesn't matter your rank when it comes to disease and death. It threatens all of us. We're all victims and we're all powerless to it. And men and women alike, they all got sick right? And just as we are all threatened to get sick by the, by the coronavirus, they were all affected by sin, just as like we are all affected by sin and disease and death and the same. 
They were all in great need of one person who can do something that no one else could do because his display of his power proved that he is the Messiah. He's got to have power over evil to save us from our sins. So he's displaying that, not just to heal people temporarily, but to show that he can uh, cause them to come out of death and into life permanently. And so this is the one, unlike any of them, he's holy God in the midst of fallen man. No one can do the things he does. He is the Messiah. And so too, we see this playing out in our own individual lives. We can see the reality from the rich across the world to the poor, from the NBA star to the outcast. This virus touches all of us. You see, the social status has nothing to do with it. Our power inevitably fails. It falls short of preventing us from somehow being a victim of this evil. And yet there is one who is different. And the display of his superior power shows us that the prominent and the poor alike need him. He is the Messiah, the only one who has power over evil. And he must have this power over evil, over the curse, over disease and death and the effects of sin, over the spiritual forces and over death and hell itself in order to save us from our sin. This is who Jesus must be. And it's exactly who he is. And so we realize the reality of who we are and the reality of who he is through the display of his power and through the reality of disease and death and our desperation because of that reality. It should lead us to the fact that we are different and that we need God. We need his divine power. He's the Messiah. And so listen, church, at the threat of disease and death, at really the threat of every evil, let us not push away from desperation or pretend that it's not there or presume that we're good on our own. Let us lean into this desperation. Let us embrace it. Let us realize that the reality of death and disease and the threat of evil to our finite lives is real. But yet let us drive us to respond like these two characters, to reach out for, to plead with, to abandon everything for, to invite into our home the one who is exactly who he needs to be, the divine Messiah, that's who we need, the Son of God, and he has power over our disease and death. You see, the, the, the reality of disease and death should cause us to embrace desperation for the one who displays the power. And ultimately, church, we need Jesus' great power over our greatest sickness, which is sin, and our greatest foe, which is eternal death. And Jesus has the power to bring ultimate healing to that too. You see, when we trust in his saving work and power, his washing of us, his power to save through his blood for cleansing and for healing and for the resurrecting of our souls, his death has the power to cleanse us from our sin and save us from eternal death on into eternity. So church, let us look to him. Let us look to the ultimate one who has power over disease and death. As we face this and as we're tempted to be afraid and to fear, meditate upon this scripture. Meditate upon who Jesus is showing himself to be and meditate upon the reality of disease and death. Let it drive you to desperation and to trusting and let it drive us to the one who has power over evil. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this great time that we get to spend together. Thank you for the reality that you are the Messiah. You are exactly who you need to be, displayed by your power over various and all evils. Let us, by the reality of disease and death and us being victims of it, be driven to you. Be driven in desperation because you are different than us. And we need you not only for healing now, but for salvation for all of eternity. You are the Messiah. We believe and we trust in you. We're desperate for you, God. And let this desperation have its work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.